Welcome to Taneo Insights, a podcast that provides in-depth analysis on the issues that matter most to CEOs and their businesses. I'm your host, Kevin Kajawara, co-president of Taneo's political risk advisory business. Let's get started. On December 19th, Taneo unveiled the results of its second annual CEO and investor outlook survey, Where is the World Going in 2024 and Beyond?, It captured the views of more than 260 global CEOs and institutional investors representing more than $3.4 trillion of company and portfolio value. And the takeaway is that despite two significant wars and challenging relations between the largest economic and strategic powers in the world, elections covering half the world's population, CEOs see opportunity, perhaps as much a function of them acclimating to leading through disruption as the new normal as anything else. I'm joined today by Taneo's senior leadership, Chairwoman Ursula Burns and CEO Paul Keery, to discuss the survey, its findings, and their own views on what it tells us. So Ursula and Paul, thank you very much for, for joining me today. And, and I'd, like to, I'd like to start, and perhaps Ursula, I can start with you, by setting the table um, for, for the survey, especially coming on the heels of the one that we did, did last year. And what were the big takeaways for you, what surprised you? What um, you know? What is, what stood out in contrast to what you hear, perhaps, as you talk to boards and CEOs today? Um, or the big, what's the big picture? Yeah, I think it's interesting. Nothing really surprised me, but it did reinforce the survey. Reinforced something I've said before, and then Taneo has noticed um, for sure over the last five years or so, and that's that. There's a lot going on at the same time. So when I was running companies, basically we had one or two fires that we had to address and put out. Um, Sometimes those fires were inside and sometimes outside. What I see now, what the survey shows, is that there are six um, just massive transitions that, that companies are going through that CEOs have to deal with and investors have to try to cope and integrate into their valuations and their investment decisions. Everything from global disruption because of war, everything from AI becoming significantly more real and uh, opportunity and a threat about globalization. So it's just that so many things are happening at the same time and CEOs don't have a place to like rest their head. That's the biggest aha for me and that trend is not, at all abating, it's actually intensifying some across all fronts. So Paul, let me let me ask you, and we're gonna get into the details and all of this in, in just a moment, but let me ask you this table setting question, the same question to you, but maybe you could also add in there, if I may, you know, the the respondents had their views on on all of the questions that were asked, but as you talk to CEOs, Given all of that uncertainty that uh, that Ursula just that just mentioned, and that they're all compounding on one another uh, because they're happening concurrently, can you discern the confidence that they've got about whether their views on this year are are clear, or are they saying we're going to have to remain incredibly nimble given the the potential for volatility and 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 uh, and the sort of the sui generis nature of the year ahead? Thanks, Kevin. I. I want to borrow a a line from Joe Kiernan this morning on CNBC with Ursula, which is the Taneo study provided insights into the men and women who are actually making the decisions on things like where capital is going to go and why, which is driving, I think, a lot of optimism around M&A. So I think that's the clear difference. 
previous year versus previous year, which is uh, there is a bullish, clear message that next year there is going to be a lot of consolidation, a lot of mergers and acquisitions, a lot of deployment of capital because capital access confidence is really high. And as a consequence from offensive or defensive reasons, I think we're going to see a very active market next year. That is the view of the men and women, I said, who are, who are the responsibility for guiding their board to approving the deployment of capital. And they're doing so with the confidence that that capital is going to be easier to access. They're doing with the confidence that inflation is going to be in a category that remains supportive of M&A. And they're doing it because, as Ursula mentioned before, because of disruption. They're doing it because there is a need to address the challenges and opportunities in the market. So a big takeaway for me is, and a big difference year over year, is those who have stewards over those businesses are sending a clear signal that they're going to be busy next year on an offensive or defensive basis doing M&A. And, you know, we, one of the key takeaways um, reading through this survey is that in spite of all of the uh, disruption, in spite of the uncertainties, that in general, the, the CEO class and the investor class, for that matter, are, are pretty optimistic going into next year, feel uh, that they have taken measures over the course of the last year to prepare for this um, and that they've got a, a fairly clear eye view. I guess the question I have is how they see through that fog. A lot of the population, obviously, um, is very uncertain going into next year. They're very uh, negative on the state of the economy um, and the like. Um, but it's, so it takes a, a certain kind of clarity of vision to be optimistic. So how do you, how are they, how are they getting there? I guess is the question I would, uh, I would ask. How are they seeing through this fog of war? Yes, yeah, so I'm sorry, Paul. Let me, let me, I'm going to hand it over to you because you're doing it. <laughs> you, he's, Paul is the CEO of a large, important firm. And I think the foundation for, for me and, and for Teneo is that, and for CEOs for that matter, is that they deal all the time singularly and in an integrated way with challenges. And they have to have the, this confidence that they and their teams and their business models are either set for the future or adaptable enough to deal with the future. And if it, if it isn't, that they they can actually change it very, very quickly. So it may be just that they've convinced themselves, but I mean, you don't wake up every day saying, oh my God, I'm not, I don't know what to do. Actually, most CEOs wake up every day saying, I do know what to do. And what they have to keep their eye on is, you know, any really quick movements. And Paul, you know, when I see him lead uh, Teneo, it's the, it is that opportunities rise. He has to be able to adjust to it. Challenges arise. He has to be able to adapt and adjust to it. So. I think it's just the nature of the work and the skill set of the people. And, you know, Paul's a great example of a person who has to do it every day. Yeah, I think there's a, and you and I have also discussed this before, but you've ran big companies. The, the one thing that may Kevin maybe changing year over year here, that, which I think the boardrooms and CEOs particularly, I think are the first to embrace and evolve here is disruption is constant, everyone knows that. And constant since corporations were formed. But what's now obvious, I think there's some sort of a Moore's Law analog on the annual changes in disruption. Disruption itself is disruption. So 
companies need to evolve differently now than they did three or four years ago. They need to be faster now than even three or four years ago. And they need to understand that this, this state of disruption, which is leading to a range of challenges from a civil society perspective to a political perspective, to a business perspective, I think the CEO class of today, regardless of their generation, understands this better than anyone and are guiding their employees and their companies and their capital with a knowledge of this as a not a dynamic that they read and study, but a dynamic they need to put a harness on and drive their business towards that outcome. And I think about a lot of even my own clients, I think we're working towards this, what the point I'm going to make is, there is a need to be in a constant war room readiness footing. If you've got a diversified global business. And that ironically doesn't mean you need to be in a state of constant tension. You know, constant state of war room readiness leads to civility in your platform. It leads to among your stakeholders and troops. But you have the information at your at your disposal now. You've got the power of AI as that new dynamic of disruptive technology. Geopolitics, as you know, Kevin, better than anyone, is now a boardroom issue um, and embraced by, you know, with a new set of competitors on geopolitical advisory now, the big banks. So I think all the dynamics from technology to geopolitics to macroeconomic to consumer trends to social unrest, all these data feeds are, are now available to the CEO. So he or she is now a, I think, a grandmaster of understanding how all these things intersect and need to be in a constant state of awareness of these disruptive factors. So it is fascinating to watch, I think, the C-suite evolve quicker than the political class, potentially the investor class, and even the advisory class in understanding what's next. They are not um, subject to disruption. They're largely, I think, going to be the funds surfing this wave quicker than smarter than others. And our survey, I think, is identified as the US as being a little bit different perhaps in the rest of the market. Still the biggest fee pool, it's still the biggest market, it's still the, one of the biggest innovation engines, uh, GDP. So there's obviously a, a weight, gravity, lends itself to, uh, to being the largest embrace of disruption. But I think the governance model here, the stewardship of capital model and the entrepreneurial model enables that too. So I think that disruption should move from being a, a moniker that everyone talks about in the academic to understanding that the C-suite is actually putting a harness and a bridle on it and actually is using it to good effect to grow their businesses. So let's so let's dive into uh, some of the detail of the report because right quite frankly uh, when you open it up the the interesting the interesting takeaways arrive fast and furious and at the very beginning in fact uh, we start out with the macroeconomic outlook and you just talked about the C-suites perhaps diverging a little bit and, and being ahead of the political class, certainly, but even perhaps uh, versus some in the, in, in the investor class. Because one of the things that really stood out on the very first page um, is the divergence between CEOs and institutional investors in terms of their outlook for the global economy uh, in, the first, um, in the first half of 2024, specifically the macroeconomic outlook what we see is that 94% of investors um, uh, feel that the economy will be improving during that period, and 53% of CEOs feel that it will be worsening during that period. That's a pretty big delta between those two, and I'm wondering how you 
how you read that. Um, I would note that in last year's survey, there was a similar divergence. The investors got it right, seemingly. Um, but um, how, do you, how do you read this, this divergence? There's a couple of points I would make. I, I think year over year, investors are more bullish um, in the last couple of years, rather. I think the CEO's job is not to speculate. Um, <laughs> their job is to manage the risk-weighted asset scenario that they see. Um, and they've got multiple stakeholders considering that in that situation. Employees, owners, regulators, those that provide license to operate, customers, clients. And I think the investors are very strategic and a hugely important part of that continuum. Uh, obviously have to prosecute a different data set. So I think it is appropriate if you look out there as, a, as an employee or an employer, and you look at the macroeconomic data, if you feel the angst at your own kitchen table, or you understand the challenges if you read the media, I think it's appropriate for CEOs to be judicious on how they feel about the, the, the root health of the economy, because that multi-stakeholder, multipolar view that they have, and it's also appropriate, I think, for investors to be bullish, because I think with a fair wind, with a normalized yield curve next year, with inflation dampened, you could see a lot of upside on the investing side. But they're, they're not divergent opinions, I think. I think they're investing in different things. Shorter term outcomes versus longer term um, you know, stakeholder relations and capital appreciation. So I don't, think, I don't think there's a significant delta. I think there's a significant sense of what is the immediate priority? Is it next quarter, next half, versus a through the cycle continuation? Yeah, I would agree with this, Kevin. I think it's important to, to not think about this as a, you know, the investors are right, the CEOs are wrong. I think it's perspective and time frame, And, and the, the real pressures of the day-to-day -day, um, expectations of the two different jobs, right? On average, over time, investors have to get it right, right? It's not only their company, it's CEOs have one, <laughs> one major thing to watch, and that's the value of their company vis-a-vis -vis all others. And I just think it's, I think it, th that they are both right from the perspectives of where they're attacking the problem from. Yeah, it's quite remarkable given that, you know, you rewind the tape about a year and uh, Jerry Powell was being demonized as heading us toward a, a hard landing, then it was soft landing, and now, after last week's final Fed meeting of the year, when the bias seemed to be heading toward an easing cycle next year, maybe he's the Fed chairman that is going to get us to no landing whatsoever, um, which, uh, which clearly is, is driving the, uh, the investor sentiment here. Um, one of the things that is uh, an element of all of this, of course, and you mentioned this at the outset, Paul, was the appetite for M&A um, and the prediction that there's going to be a robust M&A market uh, next year. And so I'm wondering if you could expound on that a little bit on um, in terms of what's what's driving uh, what's driving that that view um, and whether you think will play out um, as it's as it's seen. The drivers of I think that positive sentiment on M&A are there's optimism around better access to capital. There's optimism around an expectation that inflation and trends on inflation will trend to the positive. And there is a sense that this constant state of disruption is a new reality 
that COs need to pick out and truffle hunt the opportunities as a consequence of said disruption. The political dynamics and changes, you know, half the world's population will go to the polls next year, as, as you've said to me. That is not just a political dynamic that needs to be viewed and studied. It also represents an opportunity because it could open up supply chains, it could constrain supply chains, it could accelerate deglobalization, it could halt deglobalization's gallop, it could mean customer markets are constrained or expanded. But you know, you have to understand this from the CEO's perspective that all this data seems to be pointing towards from a access to capital, a rain on inflation, disruption equal opportunity, and a divergence, I think, by geographies in terms of the health of those different economies, it's leading to an M&A um, potential uh, shift to the positive next year. That doesn't necessarily mean that that is good for the broader economy. It just means it's going to be a very active corporate environment. So you just brought up the D word, deglobalization. And in both uh, last year and this year's editions of this survey, it, it occupies some of the most uh, some of the most interesting findings, I think. And you know, Ursula, a moment ago you made this point that you know CEOs have to be very focused on their mission, and that's if there's one thing. And I understand. I understand that deglobalization is an imprecise term, and and it gets defined in a lot of different ways. But it seems like if there is one thing that CEOs have got to get right in this uncertain environment with the capital availability and cost that we're talking about now and just the, the comp competitive na nature, not just of the industries therein, but within the umbrella as well of the US-China competition that is going on, that how they play this deglobalization, de-risking, supply chain resilience point um, is absolutely, absolutely mission, um, uh, mission critical. And so, um, you know, it seems like the survey suggests that you know, this theme is well underway. Investors and CEOs alike believe that this is going to be one of the most significant events um, that, uh, that they're going to have to grapple with. There's some difference about where we are in that cycle. I actually f feel like the CEO signal is we have, have recognized what we're going to have to do. We are starting that process, even if it's not going to be completed until their successor managements come in down the road. But this is the, this horse has, has left the stable, so to speak, and well on you feel like that's is that the accurate read, and are you and are and are they comfortable with that? I think it's absolutely the accurate read. It's actually good and comforting in the survey, and to be expected, I think, that the big adjustments that came out of COVID and out of some of the troubles that we're having with China that have been made by CEOs was not a knee-jerk reaction. They literally look on a go-forward basis as a new normal, which is a good new normal, accessing resources, customers, employees, supply chains from around, supplies and supply chains from around the world is something that should have been undertaken earlier. And it's smart for business independent of whether you're running away from or towards China. It is something that we learned out of COVID that you know, a concentration and single sourcing in the broad sense is just not a smart move. So I don't believe that, that there is any signal out of the deglobalization trends, except for that most CEOs are pretty sharp. 
and they're not going to be caught in a in a eye up twice in a row. That's not they're not going to allow that to happen, and that the trends that are that we see of the world opening, the world maturing from a uh, you know, rules of the road from a business perspective, from an employee perspective, from a constituent perspective, is something that they should be able to take advantage of. But I think that they see this, this deglobalization, as a little bit of a pain. It would have been great if they had to do nothing. But now that they're doing something, it's as much of an opportunity as anything to actually get access to more everything, more employees, more IP, more, more customers, more supply chains that are more resilient. Yeah, Paul, I'd be interested to hear your your thoughts on this as well, because obviously, you know, aside from putting aside, say, some of the very young CEOs in Silicon Valley and the like, for the most part, CEOs are people who are in their, say, 50s or 60s who kind of came of age through their, you know, through their professional development, um, kind of assuming that this broad term of globalization, this operating environment was going to be the one that was going to prevail and you had to, you could make adjustments on the margin, but if you got that right, you were going to be one of the winners. We we're sort of building the proverbial plane while we're flying it here, I think, for a lot of these CEOs. And um, so just I wanted to pick up on what Ursula was just talking about and, and, and how you're, you're reading it and whether you think, given that the survey also suggests that they think that geopolitical tension and supply chain friction and barriers to trade are the biggest things that they're concerned about, have they been too firm in picking the lane or, or do they have, do they re retain enough you know, strategic nimbleness if things adjust further. Yeah, no, it's, it's very interesting. And the data would suggest to Ursula's point as well, that CEOs, and we're talking about hundreds of CEOs around the world have not decoupled from China, for example, which is yes. the poster child for matters deglobalization. It's not the only market, uh, but it is the poster child for this discussion. So companies have not, um, reacted to the geopolitical and the political dynamics, even though they understand, respect, and appreciate, and are modeling out the consequences of saying, but they haven't decoupled. And indeed, they understand and remain committed to China as a market for customer access, China as a market for their supply chain efficiency. So I think there's a hope and expectation that the geopolitical, political, and regulatory dynamic will match the, the, the trade obligations. And I think the that all authorities have in facilitating the next phase of growth. I think that's interesting. I also think, you know, most CEOs are, if not all, I would say, are, are students of economic history. Uh, deglobalization means many things, but it also has many consequences which you can measure. Right? You can understand if deglobalization occurs, what does that mean for supply chain friction? What does it mean for customer market access? But also, what does it mean for industrial policy? I think industrial policy in the West, at least in the US, probably peaked in the 80s. And then Washington consensus moved that to more of a privatization and a free, let the free market decide where capital goes. And we're entering a, a period again where industrial policy is, uh, has some bipartisan support, which is interesting. So one of the big CEO considerations we are seeing on a client by client, particularly in the relevant industries, is uh, how do you model out an industrial policy under a new administration in the US? Because regardless of wins the election next year in the US, there will be a new administration. There will be new men and women in different positions. And how will that impact uh, all the things that Ursula mentioned? Supply chain, trade, trade barriers, trade agreements, but also 
what will the stance be in the US and other markets on industrial policy? All this is, is all of these are on this, the, the chess table of considerations for, for CEOs right now, which is why I think political disruption is the number one issue in our survey on the client's minds. Not a purient interest in the theater of politics is because it's just so consequential to how they allocate capital and make decisions right now. So we're certainly going to get back to that in a in a moment. But Ursula, Paul just said, so I'm interested. Part of everything that Paul just talked about is is an is a key element in this ongoing process we seem to be undergoing here as well. Um, yet another disruption, if you will, which is the definition of the social uh, the social rationale for the corporation um, that it has now evolved beyond the simple kind of Milton Friedman maximizing profits and minimizing uh, minimizing costs. So there are a lot of other variables that are, are, are coming into play. And I'm wondering, you know, um, you, you sit on a number of major boards and have, you know, what you're seeing, where are we in that process of that redefinition of the, of the corporation? Um, and how do these variables that we're talking about and that we still are going to talk about further on things like ESG and the role of labor with AI coming on and so on and so forth, you know, where are we in this process? Yeah, I think that, you know, we, we, poor Milton Friedman has, has been boxed into like one thought process from this guy, which I don't think it was the case. There were other constituents that he spoke about. The one that won out overall generally was the shareholder. So companies have all the boards that I currently sit on and many, many, many of the companies that I engage with, I'd say the vast majority, for as long as I've been engaged with them, have had more than one constituent in mind. They've always had their employees, the smart ones, for sure, but all of them lightly, somehow or the other. And they did have the political infrastructure as well. So making sure that their businesses were on the right side of, even mentally, of laws, et cetera, not only legally, but also mentally. But the shareholder did win. I think what's happening now is that we are very aware of the fact that that single focus doesn't necessarily serve that single focus well. So the focus doesn't work well for the focus. It doesn't work well for business that employees and customers and this whole license to do business um, aspect of, of business is up for grabs if you don't serve all three reasonably well. CEOs know this. Many of them have been operating this way uh, for a long time. The part that actually concerns me and worries me and that we actually spend a lot of time in boardrooms, the boardrooms that I'm in on is how do you do what you think is right for all the constituents and not become subject to a very new phenomenon of, of you know, backlash from structured government. And that's a, that's a thing that didn't have to be considered as heavily in the past as it is now, right? Nowadays, literally, we can see it happening over and over, that you can actually be, your business can be disrupted if you seem to be on the wrong side or the right side of certain um, stances. And I think that's the part that we have to worry the most about, and that's the thing that worries the CEOs a lot. It's not whether or not they should stand for A or B. They can generally get their heads around that pretty quickly. The question is, how do you, how should you and do you actually speak about that more broadly, more broadly, and how do you do that in such a way that doesn't 
literally get you on the wrong side of somebody, uh, which, and that's the challenge. It's not what to do as much. It's more how do you do what you think you should do without creating, you know, some, some unexpected bad reaction. So, so, Paul, a few moments ago, you brought up the, one of the biggest topics when we get to the deglobalization issue, which is, is of course, uh, China. And in my view, this was another one of the really interesting uh, findings in the, in the report. Uh, and the question to the CEOs was, you know, how important is China to your business and investment strategy? Um, and uh, you and I talked extensively last year because I thought that the numbers were um, sort of bizarrely low. Um, and what's interesting this year is that those numbers have all bounced um, in terms of how important China is today and how important China is going to be in the future to their, to their companies. Those numbers have bounced significantly off of last year. I've got my theories, but I'm, I'm, I'm interested to know what you, what you see as accounting for that, that bounce a year to year. Yeah, I think on a year to year basis in terms of the, the atmospherics around China, they, have, they, they can be quite dependent on where the political market is. We are, as we sit here in December 2023, we are still relatively fresh from Presidents Xi and Biden's embrace in San Francisco. Um, we're still, I think, benefiting from an expectation of some normalization of engagement. I think the rhetoric has toned down, and as a consequence, I think businessmen and women naturally assume that there is going to be a, an ongoing, you take that as a, as a data point and extrapolate that forward. I think last year it was a bit more tumultuous yes. in that relationship between the West and China. I think the respective administrations have done a great job in, I think, providing some economic uh, clarity on, on how engagement could occur. Small steps, one could argue, uh, but you can't box out billions of people for the Chinese or U.S. companies. And that obvious recognition translating into some, some normalization through discourse, I think, is giving some of that confidence. I think six months ago, Kevin, if we were in the field, we might have had a different answer. So that, this is so dependent on the people who are guiding industrial policy and political policy, because if you're the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, you can't shift or change the dynamics of your license to operate just on the quality of your product or service, no matter how good you are. You are beholden to the men and women in Congress, in the administration, and their counterparts around the world to find a good path to have discussions around trade and pick the lanes that American companies or European companies or APAC companies can trade in without fear of economic or political or judicial consequences. I think right now there's a sense that there's a sense of hope, perhaps more so an expectation. I think that's driving that. You know, Ursula, to this point, um, as you sit on boards and you talk to your peers on, on other boards and you're, you're pushing and questioning Managements on 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 how they're addressing um, addressing all this. Clearly, um, managements have have invested a lot of time, effort, money, networking, um, relationship building, and the like with China uh, over the last 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Um, but as we pursue, perhaps not decoupling, but to use Ursula von der Leyen's term of art, de-risking and other, other markets, other manufacturing hubs, 
um, other supply chain hubs become potentially attractive, I'm thinking Vietnam, India, northern Mexico, Hungary, and the like, do you find that have managements invested the amount of uh, the necessary and required amount of time and effort into building those same sets of relationships that made China so successful pre-pandemic? Um, or are we flying a little bit blind here on, on, on some of these other, uh, other markets? I would say some and some, and I think appropriately, the some and some is appropriate. Um, some of the businesses that we engage with, or I sit on the board with, have a inescapable <laughs> necessity to engage deeply with China and either India or Vietnam, et cetera, and others see it only as an opportunity to sell or you know, to get big clients. I think the engagement um, modulates itself based on the kind of relationship you foresee your business having with the, the economies around the world. I think that this is a place that's, I so agree with what Paul said, that it's so um, listen to the, listen to the grindstone, you know, put your ear to the grindstone driven because so much of what happens around China very specifically, but also around Vietnam, for example, we only get, CEOs get only second hand or third hand. And so they, they count a lot on not having a direct tactile engagement there. And so if it's up, it's up. If it's down, it's down. But I think everyone is modulate. All the companies I'm engaged with are engaged at the right level, you know, either opportunistically or I don't care. I don't have a lot of business there. It doesn't particularly matter to me, except for if I can get a couple of customers here or there. Or, or this is really important to me. This is key to me key supply route, key customer base, et cetera. I think it's kind of at the right level of engagement um, right now. And I hope that we continue down this path of not running scared, but actually engaging on a, on a real business basis if, you know, as we can and kind of let the politics kind of operate in the background and we businesses operate in the foreground trying to build relationship and partnerships, understanding the risks that we have out there. I think it's some and some. And there's a point I would just jump in there as well. So there's that China dynamic, I agree with Ursula. Um, there's also what has already occurred that have been driven by politics and geopolitics. That, uh, and we're spending a lot of time working with um, big multinationals as they unpack what has occurred uh, that now needs to be understood as a second order consequence. Multiple countries you could you could prosecute in this Kevin uh, interest of time is think about Brazil for a second. Right, if you look at some broad macroeconomic data, 80% of exports go to China. China has embraced the Huawei network, which many Western nations have not done so for for geopolitical reasons. Uh, China is a very um, diligent acquirer of of Brazilian debt. And it is very invested and very present in the Brazilian market. But the consequences of a worst case scenario in relation to the West relationship with China could lead to economic war or sanctions. Companies who have operations in Brazil, customers in Brazil need to unpack in advance of that consequence, what will be the impact on their supply chain or their customer market? And what does Brazil do in the event of serious economic trade challenges between those two nations, the US and China. So there's a, there's a what could happen between the US and China, but it also what has already happened 
that companies need to understand the rather consequence of that geopolitical tension in the most recent history between the U.S. and China. So given that we're, I want to digress here for a second, just given that dynamic that you're just talking about, that's the environment that these companies have to have to navigate whether they want to or not. And then you couple that with the, 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 the diverse set of stakeholders that, uh, that Ursula was going through just a few moments ago. You know, obviously one of the, one of the biggest services that, uh, that, that and, and, and things that we collaborate with our clients on at Teneo is effective communication. And considering the diversity of those stakeholders, and we know that people, a CEO will say one thing and it's going to be heard very differently in Washington than it is in Beijing, let alone Tallahassee and Sacramento. I mean, are you finding it more challenging as you counsel CEOs that the, 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 the sort of the, the communications challenge is more acute than it's ever been or the fundamentals kind of remain, remain the same? Or how would you define that dynamic? I would say a couple of things. You know, there's so much technology available today that not understanding the consequence of your words right now to any stakeholder group is just not acceptable as a CEO. So technology exists, the muscle memory exists among the teams, and the CEOs are the first, I think, to prosecute this. So there's no, there's no reason to get it wrong um, because there's just so much technology available to, to help war gain the consequence of words and actions. Now, uh, that could also lead to retrenchment of expressing your views because you know what the consequence of those actions. So there's some entrepreneurialism required in that dynamic as well. So I'm not seeing a real change in the root and branch requirements about understanding your stakeholders, how do you win hearts and minds, advance your agenda, and gain better market share or better share of wallet, whatever the commercial outcome may be. It's still a requirement for traditional high quality high empathy, highly evolved communications, but you need to couple that with understanding all the technology that's available uh, to accentuate your message, measure the effectiveness of your message, and penetrate the, 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 the people who can actually move your business forward uh, through the channels that they, where they consume their news and consume their information. So that's that, is that, coupling rather of the power of technology with the quality of communications. Uh, technology changes, platforms for the message change, but what hasn't changed is the quality of needing to understand your audiences and communicate with them. And I would, if I would just say, and I agree with you, Paul, 100%, but I would add, and I would add that never are you trying, or at least never was I trying to please everyone, right? Because if that's what you're shooting for today, um, to say something that everyone can agree with, you're going to fail that. Um, now more than ever before, because we have polarized most important topics so much that it's almost impossible to say anything of meaning without understanding that somebody in some corner is going to not be happy. I think it's important to, as Paul says, to be clear about your intentions, what you need to say when you need to say it, and about the fact that everyone will listen to it at their own, in the, with their own kind of mental filters in place, and that you're just going to have to deal with that. Um, shutting up, one of, one of my, my favorite CEOs currently sitting in his role that I serve on the board of, that, you know, that his job is not to make everybody feel great every day, but his job is to be to make everybody understand, have everyone understand what his company stands for, 
and what they are standing behind. And definitely today, you're bound to end up in somebody's good house and somebody else's bad house. Consistent messaging that stands behind some value or mission that your company has and making sure that you don't soft shoe the very clear message that you're trying to get out. I would just, it's an important topic to, to double kick on Kevin for a second, right? So, because it's a, it's, it's a simple but, you know, sharp question, right? In terms of the changing nature of how companies need to communicate. I think the real existential conversation we need to have is we're in the era for the first time ever in humanity, this era of the democratization and monetization of polarization. Now, that's not a pretty um, soundbite, but it's how we just think about the framing yeah. around it. So democratization means there's no barriers to entry to anyone's opinion on any topic. And there's no real um, challenges towards uh, propagating that particular view. That is the democratization of disinformation, eudynamic. And then the monetization of it also, we've seen that uh, you know, financial benefit can be accrued, accrued from disinformation. Electoral gain can be accrued from disinformation. You can really move markets, geopolitical and financial, through disinformation. So through this democratization and monetization incentivization, right, not at all today, you're leading to a polarized world. So unpacking that as a CEO or the CCO or the C-suite of a company and understanding all these external challenges, understanding the tools that are being used against you is a big part of the journey for that next chapter of growth. You know, data has shown that there is approximately between seven and 10,000 uh, disinformation specialists residing in North Korea, whose job is to foment discord in the US and other Western allies around every topic, um, from climate science to healthcare to political outcomes to war. And understanding that machine that drives that, uh, as say, democratization and monetization of polarization is a really first principle in communication. Because yes, you can harness it, but you also need to mitigate, you also need to understand. And I think we need to get to a period as well where true content needs to be watermarked and standardized like we do for securitized information, like we do for health information, like we do for information that we lead to investment decisions that we make for our own 401k portfolios. Uh, I think there's a future state which should help companies not be a victim of or subject to the winds of an algorithm which has a, a poor and a malintent. So that is a one big disruptive monster that all companies are going to need to play a role in with government in perhaps better, sounder, safer regulation, but also in that interim period, because that regulation will take time, is understanding how that machine works and knowing better how to mitigate its damaging effects and maximize the positive effects of this technology too. Yeah, unfortunately, we have had everyone from Paul Ryan to Richard Haas to journalists to authors all talking about this very subject on this program of late, perhaps from a less corporate perspective, but nonetheless, I, unfortunately, from a societal perspective, it feels like they are all one thing that they would agree on is that the journey from here to the other side of this polarization is uh, is not going to be a painless one. Um, so um, I do want to pivot, though, a little bit, uh, and that is, Paul, you brought up technology a few minutes ago. and 
if there's been one perennial disruptor year in and year out, of course, it's always going to be technological change. And we could talk about any number of subjects here today from energy transition to the first CRISPR technology being approved by the FDA to, you know, whatever. But the buzzword for 2023 has clearly been AI. It's, it's, it's incredible to think, I think when you and I and, and Ursula were having this conversation a year ago, we were all just finishing up the first round of playing around with ChatGPT3. And look where we are today, just a, uh, just a year later. So as we look into 2024, and the survey uh, goes into some depth looking into this, clearly everyone's investing um, in, in AI, but they're certainly not doing so without differing levels of trepidation um, on both in terms of the technology, the cost, do they have the right expertise, what's the impact going to be on their, on their employee base and the like, and trying to find that balance. So I guess the question for you is, both of you really, is, is what you're seeing out there on this front and, 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 and what you're hearing and whether that balance is being struck and where you think, what you're gonna, where you think we're going to really see this, the, the big move in 2024 on this front. Maybe it's a, a couple of things, Nurse. I'd love to hear from your perspective. Obviously, at the board, probably sanctioning large, multiple billions of investment in this space too, right? So one thing I think very interesting um, right now is a lot of CEOs feel like they're being sold to, as it pertains to AI, from systems integrators, from big technology, from consulting firms, um, from governments, from regulators. They've been sold a need to act, a need to build, a need to invest. Uh, I think the why is clear, but I think the how and what for is unclear. So our advice to CEOs right now, and this is this is the pocket that I think we occupy with a, with with some uh, with some credibility, is how do you aggregate the best minds across all aspects of the AI ecosystem, and how do you bring them to bear for CEOs? And the and and the, the men and women in their in their team or in their board that are going to help them make a decision, and unpack what is the power of the current technology and the future technology, what will be the likely consequences to their customers buying decisions and buying behavior, and then what you need to build today, that's urgent, and then what you need to continue to prosecute and investigate for tomorrow and the day after that puts you in prime position to benefit. So I think there was a, a gold rush wave in the first half of this year. There was a move that's driving, driven a lot of that investment. I think there's a sobering of the reality that there is a significant upside towards protecting your gates, protecting your moat in the short term, uh, but also being patient and thoughtful about what are the right ecosystem partners you need to invest in today, because you do not want to build a system that's integrated, that's complex, that's multi-dozens, billions, without having full thought through the full ecosystem consequences. So Teneo does not have an AI brain. What we have is an AI ecosystem of brains that we've brought to the table from founder technology companies to the big systems integrators, the big software companies, and then we operate on a partnership basis to have these conversations with CEOs. So, it, you know, this is a, I don't know whether it's happened in our history, Kevin or Ursula, in recent history, whether companies have got a huge line item on their, uh, on their budget that never existed before. But mm -hmm. those, those companies that are investing in AI didn't have it on their Excel spreadsheet last year. And now they have to the tune of multiple millions, obviously, and billions. 
I, I have to, I mean, I love being on these kinds of things with you, Paul, because you're concise and smart. Agree 100% across the board. And let me just double click on a couple of points. I was thinking when Paul was talking about when was the last time, even if I weren't reasonably alive or alive but not old enough to participate, that this kind of thing happened, where something presented, who was presented to the world that had a mass, could have a massive impact, but a lot of people just didn't get what the hell it was, right? DNA technology is one of those. Fortunately, most of us couldn't do anything with DNA technology, even in our businesses, so it was narrow effect. Before that, it was probably the movement from mass computing to personal computing, right? That, that was the last change. And we should look back at that, which I haven't done, look back at that and see what happened during that time frame, just to refresh our memories. Because AI, the beginning of last year, the middle of last year, to the beginning of this year, I'm sorry, we have taken three massive steps. The first was panic. Oh my God, there is this thing out there that's going to take all of our jobs away or lie to us continuously. There was a huge amount of, of concern about this, uh, all of the bad things, some good things, but mostly bad things. We've moved, and therefore we should protect ourselves or, or do something to that effect, even though most of us had no idea what the hell we were talking about. We didn't know what AI was. We thought it was just chat, GBT, and they could make, you know, write books or that. So what has happened over the last 18 months is that people are settling down. They're settling down to less panic and more good and bad on the same page, good and bad in the same conversation. How can this, this is how the boards that I'm on, how can this help us? How can this help us expand our reach, lower our cost, uh, make us significantly more efficient, better, whatever the hell, have more fun? How can this help us? And then a equal amount of concern about how the heck can this help hurt us? You know, disinformation, literally all of the negative sides. And that's a very mature place to go from, oh my God, it can do everything and everything bad, or oh my God, it can do everything and everything good, to there's good and bad in both of these, in both of these areas. And I, and I think the next phase is where Paul is, which is what Paul just talked about, People have put in huge budget lines about AI. I, a lot of people I'm, I know for a fact don't have a clue what they're doing with it, but they know it ha something has to happen. And this is where a, an organization like Teneo absolutely can be helpful. Because what business leaders needs, need are examples. You know, this is how it's done here, this is how it's done there. Not any trade secrets, but maybe you should think about it from this perspective, let me help you place yourself in the perspective of other people who have a job very much like you or in the industry very much like you. That's what all of the people I deal with are asking for. They're not asking me to become an AI leader. They're just telling me, can you give me some examples? Can you give me some help in how I should be thinking about this, how I should be using it? And that's where we're unbelievably useful. So we don't have to be the best of the best, but as Paul said, we, we can get a coalition of the damn good into a room and speak to CEOs and business leaders about how you use it. That will help to make the outcome of this new technology more positive than negative, if we can actually sit together and start talking about it. Second point, government has to, in my opinion, must engage actively quickly. I can't believe that I'm saying this because generally when government engages actively quickly, some stuff happens that we don't, business leaders don't really care for. 
This is a place where getting it wrong early can be extremely negative. So we should just make sure that we're all aware, business leaders and the U.S. government, but even coalition governments, sit together and try to figure out what 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 does a bad outcome look like, and at least let's legislate away from that. Right? Not even what is a great outcome, but literally we know what bad looks like. So can we move back from there? It's it's going to be an important thing. We're still in the early early phases of this, so a lot lot of curves are going to come. And if you speak to um, if you speak to, for example, Secretary Romando, right, and and you read her comments, have a conversation with her, think about you know, how impressive she is as an individual and how progressive yeah. she represents that point, Ursula, about the role of government. Yeah. And not to dampen, to regulate, to constrain or restrict because of fear. It's to how do you embrace, enable, attract, <laughs> drive commercial outcomes for business. I think that is one of the things that's very exciting for CEOs to understand and think about too, right? Which is this is an arms across the aisle. There'll be a bipartisan issue at that, at least at that intellectual level across party. And this is a great time for CEOs to reach into the regulatory and political world, not because they need to sell something or influence legislation, but now is the time to actually uh, join forces and think about how does the US and you can apply the same logic to the UK, to Europe, China, any major uh, developing or developing market around the world. How do you cooperate with your regulatory and political partners and think about how do you ensure this is nothing but upside to the markets, the customer experiences, the capital generation, to wealth generation. And this is not the time for companies to stay on the wings and wait. Or it's not the time to deploy lobbyists either. It's a time to actually uh, join hands and join forces. And, you'll, and I, I reference Gina, Secretary Romando, rather, rather as someone who is a perfect embodiment of that entrepreneurial spirit that does exist in governments around the world that companies need to, I think, lean into and embrace. Huge amount of commercial upside, not just reputational upside, with that stance. Here, here. I think it's interesting uh, that you bring uh, that you bring Secretary Raimondo up. I think um, there aren't many uh, commerce secretaries that most people could name. Um, but, you know, not just on this subject, but as I look geopolitically at U.S.-China relations, she's at least as much in the conversation as the Secretary of State, the National Security Advisor, and the Treasury Secretary um, are. Absolutely uh, tells you everything you kind of need to know about uh, about where we are. We have just a few minutes left, so I want to couple, cover a couple of other topics because we could go on on AI for, for a while. But, um, you know, uh, ESG um, is a three-letter acronym that became a four-letter politicized word. Um, and I do wonder, so the, the, the CEOs who responded were incredibly clear. 92% of them say they are standing by their ESG-related uh, related programs. However, they are also saying that they are uh, adjusting how they approach elements of it, how they approach communicating it, uh, which, you know, Paul, you were just talking about in, in, in broader terms a few minutes ago. But talk about how this politicization of this, you know, effort that was really came from a very good place, how that is, how you think that that's going to be manifesting itself um, this year in what is obviously already going to be a highly politicized environment. I'll follow your lead on this one, Ursula. Yeah, 2024, this is a place, 
you know, I would say that this is one of the places that when I wake up in the morning, I would say I'm happy I'm not a CEO right now <laughs> because it's very, I'm not happy I'm not a CEO, by the way. I love, love, to do, love the job and have huge respect for the people who are doing it. But we right now are at a point where I think you'll see at the end, when we do the same thing next year for the 2024, for the 2025 survey, I think we'll still be adjusting. Next year is going to be a pretty messy year. Um, everything that can be politicized or increased in a both positive and negative way will be thrown into the fire this year because we have in the U.S. an election year. That's going to be a presidential election year. It's going to be, we already know, um, very complicated and challenging. CEOs have to put, put keep their ears to the grindstone here. They really do. I said this earlier. And make sure that they don't distract their businesses around an argument that's really not going to be helpful to them or helpful to their business or really move anything along. That, that's very contrary to my normal advice, which is to jump in the middle of all of these fights and kind of make your, your point of view, but I think your view known. I think this is a time when I would, even if I were running a company, I would be a little bit more cautious about uh, not what I say, but where I say it. Um, I will still say the same thing. So I think CEOs have to watch it because they, they can become part of somebody else's story very, very quickly. It'll always happen, but this way, this year will be, 2024 will be a very di difficult year for that to happen. And I don't believe though, that saying nothing is an option. Saying nothing is saying something. I was at a conference just the other day where old CEOs, retired CEOs, more, you know, Ken Frazier, Ken Chanel, myself, Thunder Duckett, we were all in the room and came to the same conclusion that we have a responsibility, business leaders have a responsibility to, to kind of make sure that their company knows where they're coming from and where they're coming from and where their companies are going. And so they can settle on a common place. That opens yourself up to a mess because nothing stays in a small communication space. But you just have to deal with that because having nothing to say is as important as saying something. You know, it's interpreted the same way. So, I mean, I, I ramble a little bit there. I just think it's going to, we shouldn't expect, I would not expect there to be graceful dealing with this topic by, on the political side. I think CEO is going to have to be prepared for just messy, a really messy uh, year um, around topics that should be, shouldn't be messy. I've never, um, I've never worked with a CEO who doesn't want to leave the world a better place from whence they found it, however they articulate it. Those are one of the most maligned jobs in the world, and businesses are the subject to criticism more often than they deserve. I, I, I think a view that's worth discussing, but worth debating at the kitchen table more so perhaps. I think the factory floor, the office floor, the R&D lab, the field, from a, a working perspective, are the only safe places right now, right? That's where men and women come together and they deliver a product, deliver a service, and the merits of one's effort decrease your standing in the business, right? You can have friends across creeds, across nations, uh, across races, and they all operate with a harmony and unity that's not perfect, but they bloody get things done, right? It is also the most criticized body, and it's not a homogenous world, but it's the most criticized. It deserves the most support, 
and it deserves garlands for how they've managed to maintain harmony through one of the most disharmonious periods uh, in corporate history. Now I say that to present the second point, which is it's going to get a lot harder. I think the election cycle, as I mentioned earlier, Kevin, I'm borrowing your words, but half the world will vote next year. And where I sit today in New York, obviously there's a big election in the US. CEOs are going to be put to the pin of their collar more than ever to express an opinion and a view on political candidates, political policies, and the issue of the day as it transpires and metatastasizes and then subsides on a weekly, monthly basis. And 100% agree with Ursula, you know, companies need help in understanding that reality that's coming. It's going to get more acute, but also it's not the time for CEOs to run for office. Yeah. Not the time to be the president of all the issues in the world. It is the time to, with confidence, I think, stand over what your business stands for culturally, the issues that matter to your employees and to your other stakeholders, and lean into that and invest in that and be intellectually and financially and emotionally confident that you're doing the right thing. And I, I think find a path to navigate the storms that will befall the CEO and the companies because this era of disinformation, because the external pressures from politicians are going to be put to companies to adopt positions. But they have shown themselves, CEOs and employees, as I said, from factory floor to the C-suite, they've shown themselves to be the best place to have divergent views. And we need to protect companies politically and in the media and in all of the forms to make sure that this, that we treasure this sort of harmonious coexistence of different views that, that operates in corporate America for one good example, and make sure we don't allow this sort of era of politicization actually disrupt and change the dynamics uh, or the value of companies 24 and beyond. Let me ask you one final question to close us uh, close us out, and you can both both weigh in on this because you've both commented on it to a degree here. Um, the respondents pointed out a lot of areas where they see potential for disruption in 2024, but the area where we saw the overwhelmingly big jump uh, was in domestic political uh, disruption. Um, Paul, you just pointed out the, the number of people who are going to be voting uh, around the world. I of late have been meeting, and by the way, I am analytically of the view uh, that there are a lot of potential um, deviations from the course that we think we're on right now that could happen in early 2024 before we get to the US general election. But the point was not lost on me as I've been meeting of late with a number of our large international clients that say, despite all of these people voting around, five states, a few hundred thousand people are going to determine what the world looks like for 8 billion people. Is that consequential? And if we get to the kind of election dynamic that we think we're going to, Trump v. Biden, uh, Trump versus Biden. But what that also means is, is that CEOs may have a very different operating environment in the world. Do you think that they are adequately preparing for both outcomes, putting aside all of the political rhetoric and noise that we've just been talking about, but in terms of what the actual operating environment is, are they preparing for how disruptive that could be? Or do you think they are underestimating 
how disruptive it could be? I, w I, w I would say you reference the US, we'll use that as an example, not as a proxy. Every CEO that Teneo works with and every CEO that Ursula and I might be friends with or spend time with, are none of them are underestimating challenge that they face. Um, I think they feel that they have some scar tissue that will benefit them uh, and some muscle memory that will benefit them in this next political um, phase. I'm not sure that's correct, however, because I think that a new Biden administration or a second Trump administration will be uniquely different from their first administration. History shows this, political and economic history shows this. Cabinet, new macroeconomic trends, new disruptive technologies. But what I think they are embracive of and understanding of and are steeled for is that there will be new industrial policy, there will be new trade policy, there will be new political policy, and it will impact to the benefit or the negative, and they're modeling both, supply chain efficiencies, labor market efficiencies, access to customer market efficiencies, and uh, the ability to grow um, the, the economy. So I, I, I've not met any CEO that's under-concerned. Uh, I think every company, including our own, can do more in preparation. But I think there's a readiness and a willingness to embrace that. What we need uh, to provide our clients, and they get this from many of their partners, including their banks, their law firms, other consultants, and this all needs to happen, I think, as a, as a productive ecosystem is to help best prepare what are the likely outcomes, how do you prepare yourself for the highest probability outcomes, and how do you make sure that whatever happens in November next year, and pick your month in each of the markets around the world for this election, that the company hasn't already modeled out what it needs to do from an operational and a, a financial perspective that night and the following morning. And that's work that needs to get done starting today. 100% agree. Every CEO that I engage with, everyone, even the CFOs and the C anything, has two, three, four different scenarios in, the, in their head. I think this is the first time since I've been engaged that that's so actively thought through. So it's not even less, it's actually significantly more the A side, the B side, the C side, if there's a potential C side. So I think that they're taking it seriously. My concern is that they're taking it seriously, meaning a lot of time, a lot of energy focused internally, right? On it's a very important internal thing, but it it's it it's above just about everything else that they're talking about right now. And we should make sure the politicians that are and that will be have to make sure that we understand that there's a nation that we are that we are part of that is competing with other nations, sometimes good, sometimes bad, whatever, and taking our eye off the ball on kind of silliness doesn't bode well for us. And so we should, I know that this is a, a unfounded wish, but that we should get back to real business real soon and you know, get off this, you know, what do I say, this craziness that kind of is surrounding us. That's not, that's a wish, it's not gonna happen. I, I actually am 100% sure it won't happen, but we're spending a lot of time on this. This is all three that I'm on the board of a lot of time. Well, 
to our audience, if you'd like to see the details of everything we've been talking about today, Ineo's new CEO and Investor Outlook Survey, Where is the World Going in 2024 and Beyond, is out today. If you haven't seen it, please reach out to us at Insights at Taneo.com, and we'll make sure you see it. Ursula Burns and Paul Curie, I want to thank you both for, for joining me today to talk about uh, this important report and its, uh, and its findings. To everyone, as we've just been talking about, 2024 is going to be a dynamic year, to say the least, and we will be back uh, starting in January uh, to help you think through it. Until then, happiest of holidays to you and your family, wherever you may be, and all the best for a happy 2024. Until January, I'm Kevin Kajiwara in New York. Have a great day. So there you have it. I'm Kevin Kajiwara. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Taneo Insights. If you have any questions about any of the topics we cover, please reach out to us at Taneo Insights at Taneo.com. See you next time.